0: That's ChumbaCasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Ladies and gentlemen.
0: Can I please have your attention? you! Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, Very excited uh, for today's guest. Been trying to get him on for quite a while. Um, One of the foremost uh, political scientists in the business today. Um, um, You've probably heard of some of his books, including uh, The Emerging Democratic Majority, which we'll talk about in a second. He's got a new book coming out called where Have All the Democrats Gone?, which I'm excited to ask him about. And uh, he is one of the authors for one of my favorite uh, left of center uh, newsletters uh, called The Liberal Patriot, where he seems to be on some days channeling the spirit of my old boss, Ben Wattenberg, as uh, making the case for liberals and Democrats to actually be uh proudly patriotic and common sense about all sorts of things and how moving to the center in various ways, um, even if it's not your ideological priority, uh, should be a political priority if you actually want to do this crazy old-fashioned thing called win elections. Um, And so we're here to talk about all of that stuff is uh, Roy Teixeira, not the Portuguese running star, but the political scientist.
1: Uh, Roy, welcome uh, to the uh, Remnant. (laughs) I'm delighted to be here, Jonah.
0: So. I've, you know, I, I will admit I spend more time defending Francis Fukuyama's book, uh, The End of History, from people who think they can judge it by the title. Uh, but I spend, uh, ever since this great replacement theory thing has taken off, I've been at pains to explain to people that uh, that the Teixeira Judas book doesn't exactly say what you what you've been told it says, and you should actually go back and look at it. Um, but all that said, can you just sort of explain as if I'm sitting I'm a smart person sitting next to you on a plane and I don't know much about this stuff about like why that book was controversial, why that book mm-hmm. was misunderstood, what it said and um and and how you see it you know in with the benefit of hindsight. Is that a too broad a question for you?
1: No, that's fine. Um <laughs> The first thing to note about the book, of course, is it came out quite a while ago. It came out Mm -hmm. uh, in 2002 and John, Judas and I wrote it uh, when we surveyed the political landscape coming out of the 1990s and the uh, first election uh, of 2000 uh, and political trends related to that. And our view was that if you looked beneath the hood, so to speak, you could see that a lot of trends were ongoing. In American politics and American society, that potentially could redound to the benefit of the Democrats. And certainly, one trend that we did mention was the rise of the non white population, particularly Hispanics and Asians, mostly Hispanics. Um, but that was just one thing we mentioned. We also mentioned the realignment of professionals toward the Democratic Party. We mentioned closely related to that the rise of cosmopolitan, more ideas-driven metropolitan areas in the country that we called ideopolises, where the general culture and tenor of things was uh, very much uh, sort of in tune with where Democrats were coming from at the time, and that was going to be an advantage for them. We looked at the changes in the voting patterns and preferences of of women, particularly uh, large groups of highly educated women, single women, uh, uh, working women, and so on. And it seemed to us that if you looked at all these cultural, ideological, and economic changes that the country was going through, that it was much more in tune with where the Democrats were coming from, and a sort of progressive centrism, as we thought of it. Uh, A basic uh, progressive outlook toward intolerant attitude toward cultural change, a willingness to use the government for the public good, um, but in a relatively moderate way, uh, that was consistent with where a lot of... Uh, Democratic constituencies were coming from. And that this could become the new common sense of the country. And the Republicans at the time seemed less in tune with that. So our argument was these are ongoing trends. They're likely to continue into the future as far as we can see. And if the Democrats play their cards right, they could be in good shape. But, and this is a very important stipulation we made in the book, and is widely ignored. We said, Demographic change does not happen overnight. Demographic change does not mean that constituencies that have been trending against you will disappear all at once. And then, in fact, there was no conceivable situation in the future in which the Democrats would not still need to maintain pretty strong support among white non-college or working class voters. That doesn't mean a majority, but it means they can't get wiped out. Uh, Mm -hmm. particularly in certain states where white working class voters are so important. Um, And if that happened, then, uh, you know, sort of all bets were off that that was going to make it hard to have a dominant majority coalition. Uh, And of course, as we saw, despite the impressive success of the Obama years in terms of building a presidential coalition, at least, uh, it turned out to be, that turned out to be exactly the problem. It wasn't actually enough for the Democrats to corner or do very well among their emerging constituencies if this massive group of white non-college voters, who let's remember are still you know, well, over 40% of, of voters in the country in, in a presidential election and more in certain other elections and much more in, in key states like Pennsylvania, so-called Rust Belt 3 Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, and other states like that. So, uh, but they're everywhere, <laughs> they're everywhere. Right. And you can't afford to get your clock clean among these voters, and if they start seeing the Democratic Party as being inimical to their uh, cultural outlook, their way of life, and their future, (laughs) and they kind of start to think the Democratic Party uh, looks down on them and thinks they're a bunch of great unwashed reactionaries, that's not going to turn out well. And I think we're seeing a lot of that today in in this country. Yeah, so
0: um, in terms of the Democratic Party's problems today, and 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 feel free to like expand or or, or um, correct if, correct me if my characterization is wrong. But um, from reading your newsletter pretty regularly, um, it seems to me that I, that you whatever your ideological preferences may be, you're sort of on the same sort of team as David Shore in the sense that if you want to achieve any of your ideological preferences, you first have to win elections. And winning mm-hmm. elections means not talking down to voters, not being dis- dismissive of voters, and um, and actually meeting voters where they are, particularly on issues of totally legitimate concerns like crime and education and and, and that kind of thing. And immigration, and, yeah. and immigration too, right. So mm-hmm. I guess the, the question I have is, to listen to a lot of progressives these days, uh, sort of very online, blue check mark type progressives, the reason why the Democrats have lost that white working class sort of FDR co- backbone of the FDR coalition, non-college whites, is because they either always were racist or they've become racist or they're, or they were triggered into being racist by the influx of non-whites into the party or into the country through immigration. And mm-hmm. I think obviously, there's you got to get pretty granular and specific about what you what evidence you're going to provide to back that up. But I don't think you can dismiss all of that out of hand. On mm-hmm. the other hand, talk to most conservatives I know, and I know a lot more conservatives than I do progressives. The explanation would be more about what what I guess Thomas Piketty calls it, the, Braham, Bra- the Brahmin the left, Democrat, the Brahminization, the Brahmin left, the
1: Brahminization of left. Yes, uh huh. Right,
0: where. The only people who really support the Democratic Party are the hyper-educated coastal elites, uh, that kind of thing. Um, and it's, as you sort of mentioned, their contemptuous and disdainful attitude towards the great unwashed is, and their insistence on calling them racist, whether they are or not, is what what pushes them out. How do you assign the causality in something I, mean, I stipulated that it's sort of overdetermined and there are a lot of variables, but mm-hmm. like, what's the, how do you tell the story about why it is that so many white non-college educated voters have left so rapidly from the democratic coalition?
1: Right. Well, I think one thing that's important to stress in this debate about how racially motivated a lot of these political trends are is that we're a much less racist country today than we were like even 10 or 20 years ago, and certainly 50 years ago. I mean, you look at all the underlying survey data, uh, you look at the culture as a whole, I think it's hard to make the case that we're, we're a more racist country than we used to be. In fact, we're less racist country than we used to be. Uh, I just think that's a fact that a lot of progressives refuse to admit, but it's actually kind of true. Um, you know, and therefore, what they rely upon to categorize people as racist is sort of—they're revealing their underlying views by who they vote for, right? It's kind of like mm-hmm. a, a trap. Well, if you voted for Trump, you must be a racist. You know, I mean, what could be? Could there be any other explanation? No. Um, mm-hmm. You know, not to get too in the weeds, but there's this whole shtick in political science about so-called racial resentment, uh, which basically has to do with a battery of questions that, in some ways, tap people's sense about what a fair and just world is, like, you know, Irish and Italians work their way up without special favors, blacks should do the same, you know. These kinds of Mm -hmm. things are are taken to be an indicator of racism, maybe just be an indicator of a conservative philosophy about how people should get ahead of the world. So uh, the sort of transformation of those kind of conservative views into an indicator of racism has been a a real trend in political science and a real trend... Mm -hmm you know, if there's empirical backup for the idea of people are motivated by racism, it frequently comes down to that kind of thing. Um, another thing that I think is key here is to understand how the progressives, the set, most people on the left, processed the election of Trump. They could not get their minds around the idea that there might be some reason why people would vote for Donald Trump that was not Racist or xenophobic. They didn't or couldn't see the extent to which Trump, by his denunciation of elites, was actually and talking about basically the people in flyover country or getting their, you know, getting reamed out by the, by the elites, that they were tapping into something. He was tapping into something real. A lot of these voters are in communities that have been left behind. They are feeling like their, their culture and country is leaving them behind. They are feeling like they don't have a place anymore they are worried about the future prospects of their communities, their children, and so on. I mean, one thing I always find ironic about this, Joan, and I've written about this in one of my pieces, is that people on the left for 40 years have been denouncing neoliberal capitalism as a monstrous system that impover- sort of ruins everybody's lives, especially those in the working class, right? I mean, it's the nature of this economic model is to... Is to you know, interfere with people's ability to lead a decent life. Well, if that's true. You know, <laughs> is it at least possible? Some of these people could be reacting against that. I mean, shouldn't we at least consider that possibility? But no, instead at the very moment when people, I think broadly speaking, including some of these white, white working class people are, are having more questions about this standard neoliberal economic model, the left is kind of veering off into this cultural cloud cuckoo land where just everything's about various forms of identity, race, gender, trans, whatever. Um, And, you know, it's much more important to fight oppression on the basis of of those things, real or assumed, than it is to actually do something about uniting people behind an alternative economic model. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's all very strange, I think, in a way, uh, and it reflects, and this is something David Shore has talked a lot about, the sort of cultural hegemony now of you know, the per, young you know, professional class, especially young, younger people, younger generation folks in terms of dictating the cultural outlook of the Democratic Party. Um, you know, there's a whole congeries of things that you're now supposed to subscribe to if you're a good Democrat or good progressive that are absolutely not necessary for, <laughs> uh, for having a progressive, you know, economic and social policy. Uh, in fact, they're counter. They, they ca- they're they counterproductive to doing that because they basically limit the amount of, you know, they put a ceiling on your coalition, they alienate a lot of people might otherwise support you, and so on. But this cultural hegemony now that has taken over the Democratic Party and has come to define for a lot of Democrats and for a lot of normie voters who look at the Democrats, defining what it means to be a Democrat is just profoundly off-putting uh, and not at all a way to build a, you know, a solid majority coalition. Um, so, you know, that's why we, we say in you know, the title of our book is, where have all the Democrats gone? We're trying to figure out, well, how did this happen? Yeah. And how did Democrats evolve in this direction? How did, why were they on the cusp of a new majority? And then, in a sense, kind of threw it away by how they, they, they evolved politically and culturally. I mean, it's a very interesting question. And it's a very interesting question how, I mean, we know a lot of the energy comes from below on some of this, from... You know, professionals, class people in the younger generation, but why did all these other people who are older and presumably a little wiser acquiesce? I mean, you look at the foundations, you look at the nonprofits, you look at the people staffing the infrastructure of the Democratic Party, you look at academia. I mean, it's everywhere, right? I mean, it's like this this consensual view on the things that right thinking people must believe if they are progressive. And conversely, the people who don't subscribe to those things, you know, aren't just mistaken. They are sort of bad people. Mm -hmm. So there you have it.
0: Yeah. And there's also a, um, there's a, there's sort of a a, uh, China syndrome kind of like logic to it because there's no limiting principle to it. So uh, not to get in the weeds, but, you know, there was this controversy at the Washington Post because, dave weigel who's by no means a right winger uh retweeted a joke that was in the port in poor taste according to some people and then immediately deleted it before but not before some a colleague could screen capture it and tweeted it out and talked about the bigotry and cruelty of this or whatever long story short uh weigel is now uh on uh he's suspended for a month without pay um right and the only reason i bring it up is that there is this my friend, Charlie Cook from national review makes this point. Um, there's this very strange phenomenon where the institutions in American life that should be the most passionately liberal in the mm-hmm. proper sense of the word, um, tend to operate internally in the most illiberal fashion. So universities, which should be the, have the most expansive, generous, opens new ideas and free debate kind of attitude are shockingly illiberal in the you know maybe not in sort of quiet cubbies away from the crowd but in their public facing atmosphere they're very illiberal and same thing with the major newspapers are very illiberal where um and i i personally think it has to do with the fact no offense to your generation i'm gen x i assume you're baby boomer uh that first of all baby boomers have been around too long in terms of holding power but second the cult of generational identity politics and the cult of youth that the baby boomers have brought into all these institutions makes them uniquely terrified of young huh. people. And they Ooh. cave to them over and over again at these various institutions because they actually believe you don't understand because you're over 30 kind of arguments have merit. And um, I'm not saying it explains everything, but it, I, I know so many people who are stuck at institutions around Washington and in New York, where basically it's the the young people have terrify management. and they go out and management just bends over backwards to sort of appease the the mob that mounts in like slack channels in in revolutionary era France, like there were saloons before mm-hmm. they can spill out. And I, I think it's part of it. It, it. There's something in elite theory and the fear of young people that gets to some of this stuff. But I don't have a, you know, I just have pieces of a theory about it. I mean, I, I but um, so the question I guess I have is how does, mm-hmm. how does the Democratic Party get out of that? Right. I mean, I'm a conservative. I would like the Republican Party to be sane. I have to wait a little while for that, I think, at best. Um, I can't call myself a Democrat because the Democratic Party, I think, is maybe less insane than the Republican Party right now but it's policies at a more fundamental level or just things I disagree with. So that's why my podcast is called the remnant. Um, but, uh, right. I would like both parties to have healthy, you know, both parties to be healthy and think about winning the center is the way to get to politics. How do you fix that? At least on the democratic side.
1: Right. Well, uh, as I'm fond of saying, less crazy, doesn't beat crazy, not crazy beats crazy. Mm-hmm. And the party that first figures that out will probably be in pretty good shape. Um, how the democrats get out of this is not clear at this point you know never make predictions especially about the future but i think there has to be an exogenous shock to the system mm-hmm. to get people to start reconsidering the way things are going reconsidering political strategy reconsidering attitudes toward cultural issues reconsidering the overall political approach that is implicit and explicit in how the Democrats currently do things. Now, I think 2022, the elections could well be such a shock that it would at least start the Democrats potentially down that path, because they are going to get crushed. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't see any way out of it. I see no good indicators for the Democrats at this point, uh, from obvious things like the economy and, and inflation and how people are viewing that to these various issues around crime and immigration and schools and so on, which I think are fundamentally you know, poor ground for the Democrats, if not catastrophic. I mean, look what happened to Chesa Boudin in San Francisco yesterday. Um, there's a lot of reasons to think they'll do terribly and very few reasons to think they'll do well. So they'll probably get lose a bunch of seats in the House. I think they'll probably lose the Senate um, and maybe badly. Uh, the loose governor. I mean, it's just going to be a really bad election. So when those things happen, parties start to think about maybe it's at least possible we need to do things differently, especially when they're staring down the barrel of 2024, where their presumed candidate is not the strong, you know, his he's, approval ratings are as bad as Trump's and he's a really mm-hmm. old guy <laughs> and they don't have anyone in the wings who, uh, you know, the one who's logical person to To be the candidate would be Kamala Harris, who's universally and I think rightfully viewed as a quite, would be quite a weak general election candidate. So they could, they could lose the presidency too in 2024. That's going to be pretty obvious, right? I mean, it's obvious now, but I mean, I think it'd be really obvious after they do very poorly in 2022. So when that happens, parties do start to rethink their strategies. Now the left, people who define themselves on the left of the Democratic Party, I think would be very reluctant. To change course, they will interpret their lack of success, the Democrats' lack of success in 2022, as we didn't, you know, we didn't turn out our people. There's always the turnout excuse, right? If we mm-hmm. and if we'd done more progressive things more aggressively, <laughs> we right. would have turned out the people, and we would have done really well. And and look what happens. Either you know, some combination of that, and what could we do about inflation? So, at least on certain parts of the party, there will be a reluctance to rethink things. And if you look at what the um, caucus in the House will look like, it'll probably be more liberal, not less liberal because the people who get knocked off will be people who are more closer to the center, right? Mm -hmm. So so that could present difficulties. On the other hand, if you look at the overall debate that will take place among strategists, among observers, among analysts, among normal people, (laughs) I think that there will be a push to move away from things that have been obvious losers for the Democrats. And they have to think differently about how you build a coalition. And to get at the stuff you were mentioning about the post uh, and the various institutions where wokeness, if we may call it that, seems to be so strong, is that it's always an you know interesting question: how much of this is actual preferences and how much of this is preference falsification. I think a lot of it's preference falsification where people feel not just the people who run the institutions, but uh, a lot of the rank and file in those institutions feel they have to pay obeisance to these kinds of sort of wacky ideas, because otherwise they'll get the shit kicked out of them on Twitter or Slack or whatever, um, and they don't want their coworkers to, you know, go after them. So, but sometimes this, uh, there can be a cut point reached where people, more people, start speaking out. And the zeitgeist is more in favor of what the people speaking out are saying. And you sort of have people starting to move away, you know, pretty fast away from their falsified preferences. And you have sort of a preference cascade where the more people who come out and say this is bullshit, Mm -hmm. encourages other people to say this is bullshit. And more and more people say, well, you know, fuck. if we're going to win in 2024 and we're going to have a, you know, chance to have a, a decent society, we can't just be at each other's throats all the time. We can't be having all these litmus tests for what it means to be a progressive. I can't keep on saying, I can't keep on saying all this stuff that I actually don't think is true because Mm -hmm. this is baloney, you know? So I think you have to reach that point where you have the preference cascade and a, you know, sort of a, a sort of feeling in the ether that things have to be rethought and you have a lot of prominent voices saying that, uh, you know. Ideally, you would have Joe Biden saying something, right? But I mean, I don't, that would be obvious, could obviously be interpreted in that way. Uh, or other big party leaders or other big cultural figures who are, you know, per- were perceived at least to be on the other side. That I think can start to move the plates, tectonic plates here. Um, but will Biden do that? I got my doubts. I think he's a creature of the party, he's not uh, inclined to rock any boats. I think the way he's conducted himself since he got into office and indeed since he got the nomination has showed he's basically not interested in drawing any lines uh, in the general Democratic Party universe between those who are, you know, who get it and those who don't in terms of the need for political sanity and coalition building. So that's kind of a long-winded way of saying that's how I think it might go down. It's not saying I don't think it's how it's going to go down. I just think, you know, a shock to the system creates the possibility that this could happen.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, th- this is I mean, this is a recurring theme around here about how I think it's too late in to some respects now. But the first year of Biden's presidency, it felt like every week there was just a wonderful opportunity for a good cynical sister soldier moment to signal to the voters that Biden mm-hmm. was more of a centrist than he was beholden to the, the sort of progressive base. And he let them all go. And um, it's, it's a little bit of a mystery to me why, you know, uh, Biden, who, you know, look, I mean, Hillary Clinton once said that she thought that, that Joe Biden and Bill Clinton were, uh, you know, separated at birth because they were so similar in their political outlook. Mm -hmm. And yet Bill Clinton would not be in the position that he is in right now, that Biden is in right now, because he understood that like picking fights with members of your coalition that are hugely unpopular. It was all, I think, profoundly cynical, but it was also very good politics. Um, And Biden seems sort of congenitally incapable of of bucking his base in ways that would be to redound to his benefit. I've asked a bunch of people this on here. Do you think Biden's presidency would be going much, much better if Mitch McConnell had been majority leader from the beginning of it and then Biden would have the discipline imposed on him from without to say, look, I can't give you the moon. I can't do this new New Deal crap. Um, Uh I got to be able to get stuff through Mitch McConnell.
1: Right. Well, that's uh, an interesting hypothesis sort of maybe an alternative universe that did happen. Uh, I don't think I could really say that, that I think they would have been better off with uh, with Mitch McConnell as as majority leader. But, uh, you know, I think you, the, the case you made is not completely implausible given, you know, how things have actually gone down. And, you know, what we've seen in terms of Biden's inability or unwillingness to draw any kind of lines between his sensible politics and stuff that is obviously not going to work and is kind of dumb and it's just going to alienate people. So, uh, you know, and why is that? I mean, I think that when Clinton did his sister soldier thing, uh, there, the Democratic Party was a different creature. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, didn't have this uh, hegemony Uh, among all the various elites and activists who are prominent in the party that would produce the kind of backlash that a similar sister soldier movement probably would now, or they're afraid, would, right? Um, He got away with it. And I think that in today's environment, I think Biden feels, and a lot of the people around him feel, that if he did something like this, the blowback would be so you know, sort of nuclear powered that uh, they, you know, they're they're just not willing to risk it. Um, They're really afraid. I mean, because it's, you know, think of where the blowback would come from. It would come from everywhere. All Mm -hmm. the media outlets, all the, you know, nonprofits, all the advocacy groups, all the activists, period, all the people on Twitter. They're scared. You know, they're just scared. Um, But sometimes you got to do what you're afraid of, (laughs) Uh, if you want to get to where you want to want to go, and you know maybe a different politician than Biden, maybe you know a different Bill Clinton, you know sort of alternative Bill Clinton who got elected in 2020 would be willing to do it. Biden ain't that guy, um, but maybe he's that guy after 2022. I mean, it would be interesting mm-hmm. to see, right? Because I think there will be calls in significant sectors of the party for there to be a change of course, and Biden could help that along if he said. Well, yeah, uh, you know, we Democrats, we all believe in the same things. But there are some people out there, you know, insert names uh, or make it very clear who it is, who are saying things that aren't at all about what being a Democrat is. They, you know, we take public safety seriously. We take, you know, secure borders seriously. We think our kids deserve a world-class education that's not ideological. I mean, he could, you could see him saying something. I mean, I actually, now would be a great time, actually. What I'm for is a Chesa Boudin moment. This is mm-hmm. perfect. He just yeah. got his clock clean. And yeah. people, you know, I mean, what he did, the kind of stuff he's doing and the problems he weren't addressing are widely understood throughout the country and are associated with the Democrats. So it's a great time to say people of San Francisco have spoken. You know, we agree with the verdict here. Uh, Chesa Boudin's approach, you know, he's a nice guy, means well, but this is not what Democrats are all about. We're tough on crime and we're tough on the causes of crime. And Chesavuddin did not meet the moment. And we Democrats, you know, stand for something completely different. Whatever, right? I mean, this would be a great time to call someone out by name mm-hmm. who's, you know, and London Breed, as as I've argued yeah. in one of my pieces, would have your back. I mean, she's right. going to appoint somebody new. She's said, you know, she thinks he's losing control of her city and it's falling apart. Um, and she's a black woman. So come on. <laughs> what more do you need? Yeah. Well, do yeah. I think it's going to happen, though? No, <laughs> not I, at this I mean, point. I agree.
0: I, I, I agree with you entirely. I mean, and, and and the tragedy here is like particularly on crime and also good schools, right? I mean, like there is like this is one of the things I'm sort of fascinated by. I think conservatives generally pat, can pass ideological Turing tests about what progressive <laughs> arguments are much better than progressives can pass conservative Turing tests in part because we grow up in progressive cultures. So we're kind of like bilingual in a way. Uh Uh-huh. Right, right. And, um, and there's some evidence, and Tyler Cowen, I think it's Tyler Cowen has written about this. There's some evidence to back this up about the Turing test kind of thing, but I can make a really strong, good old fashioned progressive argument for being tough on crime. I mean, crime is a regressive tax on poor people. You know, uh, the victims of crime are wildly disproportionately, you know, minorities um, who are in struggling economic circumstances. And the idea that somehow is it is racist to be anti-crime is such a self-defeating position. And particularly when you look at like the polling on like the defund the police stuff where African-Americans didn't want to defund the police, um, the willingness of sort of the mainstream media to be an echo chamber for very radical ideas that aren't actually supported by the communities that they think they're serving is such a problem for the Democrats. I find it kind of amazing. But anyway, I, I, the thing that I just find so frustrating about it is this pipeline, this this hump, the homo- homogenization that you're talking about in terms of liberal elite thinking. Um, the, the concern I have, because I think it's bad for the country, um, is that unless you actually break that in the universities there's really no chance of breaking it in electoral politics just because the Mm -hmm. sort of managerial class transmission belt out of higher ed is so powerful in this neoliberal system that we've got, um, that I'm just, I'm just skeptical that you can break that, that you're too far down the conveyor belt of politics if you're just trying to fix it by fixing the Democratic Party if you don't fix it a little closer to the source of where those ideas are coming from.
1: Yeah so politics is downstream of culture and culture is downstream from the universities that 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 does present a daunting picture I guess I'm not so sure about that I think the universities are full of people who are uh, practicing uh, the rights of preference falsification even as we speak I mean, I Mm -hmm. think there's a ton of people out there who, they may vote Democratic and they may consider themselves liberal, but are going along with a bunch of stuff that they think is baloney. Now, Mm -hmm. you know, the people in the race and gender studies departments, yeah, they're pretty hopeless probably, but that's not the university as a whole. There are tons Mm -hmm. of political scientists, economists, and of course, all the STEM people who uh, think a lot of this is nonsense. And I think that in a different atmosphere, they might well be willing to speak up. And don't forget the cowardly administrators who are, <laughs> you know, regardless of what their personal views on anything are, are quite willing to, to cave into the woke mob and to, you know, practice, uh, you know, these sort of rights of anti-racism. I mean, look at Princeton as a great example. What does you know, Ein Gruber or whatever his name is really believe? Who the hell knows? But he certainly right. thinks that at this point he can't afford to do anything except be a you know sort of general in the anti-racist army uh, at Princeton. I mean, he's got to do this. Why? Who knows? But I don't think it's just, you know, he's a committed anti-racist warrior and that's what he wants to do. Mm -hmm. So, I wouldn't underestimate the ability of cowardly administrators to, uh, you know, turn in the direction of the prevailing winds if the prevailing winds do in fact change, and that would have an effect on the atmosphere at at universities. And, you know, universities are the universities, yeah, they're a transmission belt, but most of the people who are making the decisions and affecting things right now and are running institutions are obviously, you know, by definition, not in the universities. They're out there and they're more in the real world. So, you know, pressures mount in certain directions, winds change. There's a cultural zeitgeist shift. There's a so-called vibe shift that some people are already talking about, you know, who knows what'll happen. you know, I can't say I'm optimistic this will happen tomorrow, but I guess I'm more optimistic that unless we we root out the liberalism in the universities uh, somehow, mm-hmm. that we're kind of doomed. You know, I mean, yeah, I'm be, not saying doomed. I just think yeah. it's going to be
0: a harder process, right? Um, without doing something about the universities, um, I'm with you. Like I, I'm, I, I'm long term bullish on America still, um, and I want to get to that in a second, but mm-hmm. uh, the. The so one of my uh, hobby horses is I, I fundamentally don't like primaries Ooh. and I think the primaries uh, you know the post McGovern primary system right primaries existed and you know the stuff that I, and I do for a long time they just didn't matter very much until right. after 72 um, uh, and whatever merits they had or whatever merits they still have, uh th- those merits dim- are much more diminished in an era of the big sort and polarization and um um and this general sifting of 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 electorates. And mm-hmm. uh plus with the general weakness of the parties and the role of, of sort of boob bait, infotainment, cable news and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm very much I'm very much anti primary if I had to choose I would do nominating conventions of some sort um or at the very least I would do some of those reforms at the margins about uh you know getting rid of open primaries basically I think the parties need to be stronger I think we have when you have weak parties you have strong partisanship um, I know you're familiar with these arguments mm-hmm. I just mm-hmm. want where do you, I just want to know where you come down on all of that are you still do you think primaries are a net benefit or you just think they're too hard to get rid of
1: yeah, I guess I'm more in the, the latter category. They're too hard to get rid of. <clears throat> and it is sort of hard to make, you know, the substantive argument against democracy because in theory, it does allow people to pick their candidates. Um, but they have obvious downsides in general and in very particular in the situation we're in now with the polarization. You talked about the big sort, uh, you know, polarization by education is huge, right? Because who shows up in primaries, you know? Uh, It's activist people, it's highly educated people, more so than less educated people. So there's an intrinsic skew of the primary electorate toward these sort of more activist and extreme elements of of parties, right? And we're seeing the results of this now, and it's very bad. Um, That said, yeah, I don't see how you get rid of it, frankly. I mean, so far, things have gone in the opposite direction, right? Caucuses are being replaced with primaries and so on. Yeah. No, I'm. I guess color me skeptical on that, though. You know, obviously, I agree with you that we could see the unintended consequences of the primary system before our very eyes.
0: Yeah, I'm all in favor. Just be record, I'm all in favor of democracy between parties. You know? <laughs> <You did. laughs> um, right, it was it right. E. E. Schatzneider <laughs> who said that? You know, but like, um, I'm uh, democracy between parties. That's the system we got. That's great. That's the Constitution. I mean, not the party part, but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think. I don't think democracy, democ- a democratic society does not require democratic institutions. Mm-hmm. It, it may require a lot of liberal institutions, you know, or Republican right. institutions, but, uh, the Marine Corps would not be improved if the platoon got to vote on what hill they were going to take. Um, corporations do not poll all of their, you know, they, they don't, the guys in the mailroom don't get a vote. Um, and, Why our parties should be internally democratic to me? No one Hmm. has made a very
1: powerful case to me. Okay, yeah. So uh, I see. Yeah, I'm not sure the analogy is that exact between parties and corporations and the Marine Corps, but you know, I take your point. Um, Pick your institution, the Catholic Church. You know, like there, there are very few strong, strong and healthy
0: institutions. Period. But there are very few that are internally democratic. I mean, I just, uh, universities aren't internally democratic. No, no serious institution that we take seriously that I can think of Mm -hmm. is an internally democratic institution. And yet we somehow think because parties are in the business of democracy that they should be internally democratic. And I Mm -hmm. get that. That's where we are. I think it was a mistake to go that way. I mean, I'm not saying that the smoke filled rooms were perfect, but uh, I don't think our politics has gotten healthier or better or that the parties have become better parties because of primaries. I I think all the evidence, almost all the evidence, goes the other way. So that's just where I come down on.
1: Yeah, well, uh, color me uh, curious and sympathetic. Fair enough. That's all I can (laughs) (laughs) If you come (laughs) up with like a feasible way where we can uh, get people to take seriously an alternative uh you know by all means i i would i would check it out uh
0: i mean yunkin no. yunkin you know i mean i'm sure you have disagreement in disagreements with yunkin but he was a net improvement over a lot of the sort of yachts that were winning primaries in the republican party circa what, mm-hmm. 2019 uh, or 2021 um and he was picked by a nominating convention And, uh, you know, nominating conventions are internally democratic. It's just that the question of who gets the vote is much narrower. Um, and you have to have some skin in the game and you have to have some institutional long-term investment in the health and integrity of your institution to be able to have a vote in those kinds of proceedings. When the U, when the, when the liberals in the UK opened up their primary system, their part nomination system to the masses in effect, uh, that's how they got Corbyn. You know, um, and parties are supposed to filter. I'm I'm very much an Elaine K. Mark type on this. I just take her Mm argument much further than she would. All right, but let's 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 move on to something a little cheerier. Um, Okay, you're sort of you used to write about this quite a bit. Um, You know, you're you're bullish on America, right? I mean, you you think that there's an argument to be made that we're just too pessimistic. Yes. Um, why don't you make that case? Why are we, uh, what are we, why are we wrongly too pessimistic and what do you think drives it?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I wrote a book called the optimistic leftist, uh, that was widely ignored, uh, partly because it came out in the aftermath of Trump's victory (laughs) (laughs) and partly because, you know, optimism is really antithetical to the left's DNA these days. uh, the left and a lot of people in the country prefer to dwell on all the things that are terrible about America, all the things that are going wrong. You know, climate change is going to kill us all. Uh, you know, the, you know, people are at at each other's throats, you know, living standards are stagnating or going down. Uh, you know, there's all these people out there who are racists and running around the country. I mean, what have you. And the case I tried to make, In the book is that if you look at these things in context in a sort of broader and longer view, I mean, it's clear that the country is still on net getting better. People are better off materially, we're less racist, you know, climate change is not in fact going to kill us all. We've made a lot of progress along those lines. Um, So this tendency to interpret slow progress as no progress Mm -hmm. or anti-progress I think is very much a problem in a lot of areas of the country, and particularly on the left. And my view on that has always been, well, if you want to convince people that we should move in a certain progressive direction and make the country a much better place to live and make everyday, you know, sort of ordinary people much better off, well, you're going to have a lot easier time. You're not going to have an easy time making the case if you look back in the last 50 years and you say everything's been shit you know, despite all the effort people have put into it, uh, then in fact, the people who control the country and the economy are so all-powerful and so evil that we can't even accomplish anything. You're not going to accomplish anything on climate if you're arguing that we're just, you know, a hair's breadth away from catastrophe and nothing we've done in the last 40 years has had the slightest effect. Uh, And if you look at the arc of history, right, I mean, not only does it bend toward justice, arguably, it bends toward people being better off. <laughs> I mean, people don't understand, you know, and I know you, you believe this and there are other people obviously who make this point, uh, in more detail than I can. Um, the way people live their lives today is so, so, so much better than it was in the past. Even the, the Halkyon 1950s, right? Go back farther than that. The contrasts are even stronger. And not only that, the world is getting better. I mean, there's all kinds of crappy stuff going on in the world. But if, if you look at the actual economic trends of how people are living their lives, the amount of you know, people in extreme poverty or what have you, it's gone down dramatically. Mm-hmm. Dramatically. We look at the amount of democracy. We have much more than we had 60 years ago. So there's going to be, you know, the curve's going to go up and down, but this trajectory is upwards. Um, and I think the job of progressives, should be, to try to figure out how to accelerate that progress, not to pretend there hasn't been any made. And if you want to make people hopeful about the future you're presenting, it makes sense to be optimistic, not pessimistic. If You tell people, well, so far, nothing's worked. <laughs> but if you do exactly what I say, then, uh, you know, these radical steps or whatever, then things will be better. I think people are much more open to the idea that, you know, things could have been better, uh, but in some ways they have gotten better and we have made progress. You know, is a great country. Uh, you know, human beings are good people <laughs> and we could do even better and we can progress even faster. Uh, and I think the lack of faith in the pro, uh, in progress in the future is, is very much an endemic, uh, mental disease, uh, on the left and in general in the country, um, we can do great things. We have done great things. Uh, and I think having that presenting that vision to people. Is much more inspiring than, you know, this, this this hellhole we live in America. We've got to make it a little bit less of a hellhole by, uh, you know, sort of having some more redistributed programs. I, I don't really think cool. that's very inspiring.
0: The, the, the I, I'm totally with you on this. I mean, the you, know, just, you look at the share of just interracial marriage in this country. Proposition that this is becoming a more racist country when when white and black people at huge numbers are making babies together and living their lives together seems sort they of, don't you know, confuse I mean, they, the issue with facts, Jonah. <laughs> and then you just look at the you know the survey research stuff on this is just yeah. so compelling. You know, 50 years ago, the number of people who would move out of a neighborhood, number of white people who move out of a neighborhood if a black person moved next door, was through the roof. And now it's something like it's a rounding error of zero. The number of people who say they would move out. Now, you know, there may be some social di- di- desirability bias in that. But even the social desirability is a, is a sign of progress, right? It's no longer acceptable to say racist things, um which is a sign of progress. And yet, you know, like Eddie Gloud Jr., who I think is a good guy and he's smart and he's at Princeton, but he has this line, you know, he has this line in his book where he says you know, what is one I'm Grossly paraphrasing, but the gist is: What does one do when when you realize that we've made no racial progress in this country? And that is a very conventional point of view um, that things aren't getting better, haven't gotten better. It's very Tana Coates kind of point. Mm-hmm. And um, what is your theory about the prevalent? Is is it that people need in a in a as as Max Weber might put it, in a, in a time of disenchantment, people need some sort of creed to believe in and this creed of sort of racism is the cane that gives them some meaning is it is it a is is there a, a sort of more marxian kind of it's 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 what the market demands of people i mean wh- what what is it that makes this so durable as a, as a thing and and stipulated there's still racism and racism is deplorable and all that but why why refuse to countenance the fact that there's been real progress made
1: yeah Wasn't it? I think it might have been Richard Delgado, one of the big CRT guys who actually made the statement that, you know, I have a quantum theory of racism. You know, it's sort of it all gets preserved. You know, it just pops up in different forms. The quantity of racism never changes. Right. Or racist thermodynamics or something, whatever it was. (laughs) It was sort of some ridiculous scientific gloss and an absolutely preposterous idea. Um, So why? Yeah. Why is this happening? Why are people buying into it? Well, I think there's definitely several causal strands here. I think one is that black intellectuals themselves are at a loss to explain the continuation of racial disparities in as large a form as we have. think they also tend to deny there's been any progress at all, but the disparities are still quite real, obviously. Mm-hmm. So well, how do you explain that? I mean, given the fact the quantity of observed racism has gone down, right? As you've just been talking about, given right. the fact there are no You know, all the basic anti-discrimination laws have been put in place and there's not much less obvious stuff going on. Uh, Okay, so how can we explain this? Well, I think unless you're willing to have a much more complex explanation about the relationship between historical change, path dependence, culture, Mm -hmm. the relative autonomy of culture, um, you know, uh, unless you're willing to bring in factors that have something different from race... Uh, racism, uh, you can't really explain it, right? So since they're not willing to countenance that, I think a lot of black intellectuals have concluded, while it might appear that racism has gone down, it's still all about racism, it's still all about white supremacy. There, I mean, Ibrahim X. Kendi you know, has done people the favor of distilling it down to its essence. But I think it, this kind of point of view lies in less stark forms behind Ta-Nehisi Coates, Eddie Cloud Jr., and all these other people, which mm-hmm. is, if there is disparity by race and it is to the disadvantage of the oppressed group, it can only be because of racism. It's a very, you know, disparity is racism. I mean, you need no other explanation. Uh, You know, of course, this is kind of a crazy point of view and absurdly reductive, but that is what a lot of black intellectuals have become convinced is the case. On the other side of, you know, sort of in the rest of the society among liberalish people, uh, they have essentially bought into the same thing. I mean, there's some pressure from the black intellectuals and activists themselves, but there's also an inability for liberals, people on the left, to think in these kind of broad terms that include cultural factors and include historical factors that include you know, sort of an understanding of the way real people in real societies work. They don't change that fast. And uh, they may not be, you know, being held down with a hand, but it still takes them a while to get up. Um, and there still may be dysfunctional factors in, you know, within those groups that are making them not achieve at the level they could. And we should try to make that better, but it's not really just because of racism anymore, right? So that's a complicated way of looking at it. People don't like that. They want to, you know, if it isn't because of racism in a Sort of obvious and forward sense. It's structural racism. It's systemic racism. It's kind of these vague, all-encompassing factors that uh, simply produce the outcomes that we see. And you know, if if in fact you know people, and you know, it's like it's like turtles all the way down, right? The way uh, you would explain the, the universe, right? I mean, someone says, "Well, it's on the back of a turtle," but okay, where where does it? It's a turtle under that, so you know, if you say, well, you know, why is there, why is there a lot of crime among, you know, certain black communities? Well, you know, it's, uh, it's because people are more likely people commit more crimes. Why do they commit more crimes? Because, you know, they live in a, you know, bad area where people have detached from the labor force. There's nothing going on. Well, why is that? I mean, it's inevitably, you can always get it back to racism, right? Mm -hmm. Sort of underneath the whole thing. Um, even if, Racism is enforcing people to behave in dysfunctional ways. Uh, what for? What has created the conditions that enable them to work in dysfunctional ways is racism. You can always tell a story, right? You can always tell a story that gets back to racism, either historical or present or structural or systemic. Um, it's, an on- it's not a falsifiable proposition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. so i think for a lot of people a lot of liberals have become convinced this is the only appropriate way to look at the world and that if you don't buy into it you are in fact a racist yourself i mean that's why we have these absurd white fragility things robin d'angelo uh john McWhorter has covered this in his book quote racism where he analogizes it to an actual religion um that's i mean it's taken over people's brains and until a shock leads them in another direction. And those who have already have doubts about this uh, and have falsified their preferences because of that, uh, kind of the wake up from the wokeness, um, you know, we'll we'll continue to see this. Uh, But it is a really rather extraordinary development where, you know, again, I think you can make the case pretty easily for a less racist society, much Mm -hmm. less racist society than we used to be. And yet, Vast quantities of people on the liberal side of the spectrum are convinced absolutely nothing has changed. Which yeah, is I mean, it, it,
0: it, it, crazy. It's very, like, there's this weird note. I mean, this is a very David French point, which I bring up all the time is that the most remarkable thing of after 40, 50 years of culture war is both sides are convinced their side is losing and that the other side always wins. <laughs> and right, it's right. very it strange when you think about it in a zero sum contest where both sides are convinced the other side one wins everything. Um, uh, it's a it's a hard dynamic to get out of. I mean, it, it's funny. It's put me in the position. You know, I grew up. Dad was a good old fashioned anti-communist. Um, I cut my teeth in the beginning working for Ben Wattenberg at the American Enterprise Institute. and. Mm-hmm. I uh, spent 20 years at National Review. I spent a lot of time arguing against the sort of uh, hard class consciousness, sort of you know, vulgar Marxist way of seeing the world about dividing everything into class and economic categories and cold mm-hmm. and personal forces. And now I miss that stuff, right? Because, I mean, there's a reason why the best critiques of the 1619 project came from the sort of socialist left right because, yeah yeah our friends you know, at the trotskyist world
1: socialist website yeah yeah exactly
0: and like that crowd at least you know at least when you do the class stuff you are not reducing everything down to these racial categories right you are talking you have a different view of of human of of political anthropology that um again i don't agree with i don't agree with class reducing everything down to class stuff. But I think the left in some ways was a better intellectual and political movement when it had that project. And when now we see sort of both the left and the right wanting to embrace identitarian stuff, um, which I think is just much more poisonous and Mm -hmm. much more difficult to pull out of. And, um, you know, and, and I don't know how you fix it, but it's like, uh, the, the, it has, as me as a middle-aged conservative saying, gosh, I wish the the Democrats were more Marxist again or whatever, you know, Marxist is the wrong phrase, but you know what I mean? So.
1: Right. Right. Yeah, no, I, uh, I miss it too. I mean, I speak as an ex-Marxist myself, uh, not unfamiliar with the canon. Um, I mean, as as reductionisms go, I mean, class reductionism is one of the best, you know? I mean, it it does give you a good first approximation, a lot of very important things that are going on. It can obviously lead to dogmatism and incorrect analyses in other ways. But it's a good, good, you know, good way of approximating some of the key things that are going on. Uh, And the fact that at this point, people who are actual... Marxists in the old sense get denounced by people on the left is really quite extraordinary. Adolf Reed yeah. Jr., who's a black Marxist, uh, excellent uh, analyst and thinker, who's basically class-oriented. I mean, he gets, you know, deplatformed by people in the friggin Democratic Socialists of America. What's that about? So yeah, I mean, <laughs> trying to look at American society in a way that sort of raises up the salience of class and inequality in that sense, is now inimical to a lot of people on the left, which is absolutely crazy. And you get this weird thing where people seem to believe that some, you know, black professional who makes $150,000 a year is more oppressed Mm -hmm. than some poor white working class person in some blasted out city in Ohio who is you know, like on drugs or something, right? And you know, lost their job like ten years ago. In the factory moved out of town. I mean, this is the left. Are you are you kidding me? This is what the left stands for now. So yeah, it's all it's all pretty insane. Um, and I think we we would be better off if we went back a little bit to a class perspective. Um, now, one thing I think that might help with that, Jonah, and This is something I've been trying to to make the case over and over again. Uh, And I think the empirics of this are going to start to bite is one thing that made class analysis fall out of favor is uh, people became convinced, as we've discussed earlier in this podcast, that the white working class is better looked at as a bunch of racists than as part of the working class. They're hopeless. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't really worry too much about trying to reach them. They are just troglodytes. Um, They stand for everything that's bad about America. That was easy to do when it was just the white working class that was starting to drift away from the Democrats. Mm-hmm. But I think what we're seeing now is that elements of the non-white working class, particularly Hispanic working class, are starting to bail out, uh, and the Asian working class, for sure. I think we see signs of that as well. Um, so, and even among the black working class. I mean, there used to be a, a class. Uh, class division in favor of more pro-Democrat working class people on the Black community were more uh, pro-Democratic. That's really starting to shift. So there's a lot of signs that the working class outside of the white population is starting to feel alienated from the Democrats and feeling like they want an alternative and being unconvinced the Democrats know what the hell they're doing. So I think that can put class analysis back in the in the crosshairs a little bit. I mean, some Republicans have, have claimed, have delightedly claimed we are now the party of the multiracial working class. <laughs> right, uh, right. And a, you know, in a very broad brush, that's probably true at this point. I mean, they probably get slightly more working class votes now than the Democrats. So what's, you know, again, what's that about? <laughs> yeah, the Democrats, yeah. the party of the left, now get less working class votes. So I think that uh, as we see this continued drift, you know, fast or slow into Voting against the Democrats among working class non whites, I think that will inevitably bring, you know, the, the idea to the fore that maybe class really is important. It isn't just all about race. That yeah. we're losing, you know, people we thought were ours forever, who happen yeah. to be a lot poorer and less educated than the non whites who are sticking with us. You know, there's something there. We need to think about this.
0: That's really interesting. Um, I just last question, just because. You know, you said you used to be a, a Marxist, uh, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, I assume. But uh, No,
1: but, no, I was a full-fledged Marxist, man.
0: Were, so I was going to ask, like, what were you? Were you like a Shackmanite? Were you a Trotskyite? Were you a Lovestonian? No, what was no, your flavor? I, was,
1: I went through several uh, iterations. I mean, uh, at one point I was a Maoist nice. back in the day, you know, coming out of the you know post-SDS years. Um, mm-hmm. And then I went to grad school uh, and I became a much more eclectic Marxist, uh, you know, this long compressing a long trajectory, but I was actually in a program at the university of Wisconsin, Madison, where I got my PhD in sociology called class analysis and historical Change, which mm-hmm. was run by this academic Marxist, Eric Olin, Uh, and so not only was I a Marxist, I knew and still do, you know, and it, uh, packed away in my brain somewhere, this vast trove of Marxist literature about practically everything. You know, the mm-hmm. history of the movement, the history of Marxism, all the, the more modern structuralist Marxists like Althusser and Pulansis, uh, you know, Leclay, I knew all those people. Uh, it's, it was my bread and butter for a while. And uh, what moved me away from it, this is kind of a funny story uh, in a way, is that one a, a sociologist uh, at, uh, at Wisconsin who was not a Marxist, we were having a long discussion and he's looked at me really, uh, He said, really, you know, Marxism is a very interesting system but it just doesn't explain enough of the variance, you know, (laughs) and, you know, it didn't hit me right away, but, you know, like a year later, I started to think, you know, he was right. It really Mm -hmm. doesn't explain enough of the variance. I mean, there's definitely a there there, but as an overarching system. It's not adequate. It's not adequate. Reality and history is more complicated. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, for, for a while I was, I was a, you know, true believer in one, one sense
0: or another. Um, oh, we'll, we'll do, I'll have to do a history of American Marxism podcast on another episode. Cause I, I, I I'm, I, I'm a intellectual history dork and I'm just mm-hmm. find all these things sort of fascinating. And, um, I mean, it seems like you need some more time to bake before you can even come close to being an actual neoconservative. But, uh, Ah. One of my, one <laughs> never, of my arguments. <laughs> well, look, I mean, hold on. Just in fairness, I, like I, I'm not talking about the way neoconservatives used today, but like, uh-huh. um, uh, part of my gripe is that the way people talk about. It, first of all, people call neoconservatism basically a foreign policy position, which mm-hmm. I, I, we're not going to get in the weeds on it, but it's understandable but wrong is a matter of history. Um, the original neocons were Around the public interest and all that started as former leftists or on enduring leftists who were Uh critics of the excesses of the New Deal. I mean of the the Great Society. And um um, and you know, you look at, you know, Nat Glazer, he never became a fulminating right winger of any sort. Uh Um, but he was, you know, a neocon. I understand that, you know, um, you know, there were some of those guys around the PI that went very far right. And there were some of those guys who, um, you know, um, who n- never gave up their sort of democratic liberal credentials at all. But, mm-hmm. um, the mug by reality thing I think is real for a whole interesting bunch of, of left of center thinkers. And, uh, um, and I used to, cause I was that kind of geek. I used to like do the begats of how, where they came from, you know, and uh-huh. you know, right, which, right. which flavor of Marxist or, you know, Trotskyite versus Stalinist alcove one, alcove two kind of thing. And, um, you're still mm, too far outside the, the, the family tree, but, um, you know, maybe the branches will grow out and capture you at some
1: point. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm just a good social Democrat, Jonah. Fair enough. In That's the, fine. The classic old fashioned sense. We, we need more of them.
0: And, uh, um, uh, and frankly, I'm so desperate and thirsty at this point for Democrats just to care about meeting their voters where they are rather than trying to make their voters into who they should, they think they should be. Um, you know, I mean, if if Joe Biden simply had foremost in his mind, the voters who won the primaries for him, I think he'd be better off. And so would the country, um, but that's a conversation for another time. So. Uh, Richard, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Um, the, 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 Substack sub stack that you contribute to is the liberal Patriot, the book that will be coming out at some point in the 20, years futures, where have all the Democrats gone? And, uh, thank you for doing this. Hey, it was a gas. Okay. So, uh, Roy has left the studio and, um, I thought that was a lot of fun. I, you know, as you know, I like this kind of thing. And, um, um, uh, and I've been wanting to get Roy on here for a uh, long time, and I'm very curious to see what people thought of the conversation. Uh, although I understand if some of you will take some time getting to it because of uh, the intense time commitment that the Mike Gallagher Half-Baked Ideas episode um, required, and uh, we are going to try. The schedule this week is is fakakta. Um, but we are we are going to try very hard to honor our commitment to do the drive time episode this Friday. Um, and if we can't, we'll figure out how to do it next week or something. But, um, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, become a member. If you can, that would be wonderful. And, um, I'll talk to you later.